You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good afternoon almost. Thank you for not uh, being at 10 and being getting the memo on our new service times. Uh, it's good to gather together as the church. My name is Dean, I'm the pastor at City Church. We're starting a new series today called Stuck in the Middle. We're looking at that reality for Christians that we are finding ourselves in the middle of of the two comings of Christ, the first one being the advent, the Bethlehem manger, God being with us, the first coming of Christ, and then the second coming, which we're still waiting for. We find ourselves in between those two times, between those two moments, and it's easy living in the middle culturally to often get stuck in the middle of that in terms of how we're to live faithfully in our lives for Christ. Our primary text today will be John 17, then also 1 John chapter 2, if you're someone who likes to follow along on your phone or your binded Bible or on the screen, all, all the above. That's where we'll be today if you want to mark that. Uh, we have, the reality is we've been redeemed by the cross of Christ, but we await Christ's return in our full redemption, which means in the meantime, we are experiencing life in the middle between our redemption in Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of all of that when Christ returns. Let's pray together and we'll jump in. Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, we are thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, and one day will return to make all things new. We ask in the meantime, as we are here, as we are in the middle of those comings, that we'll be found faithful, that we'll understand what it means to actually follow you in a way that you intended for your disciples, for your church to be. I ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. I ask you to be with all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. Also ask that you be with those in our church family today, maybe who are hurting, who are sick, uh, who had different struggles. Lord, allow them to uh, know that you are near, and we are grateful for that reality and that truth. And we're thankful for all of it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, any middle children here in the room? Any, any proud middle children? Okay, got a few. All right, always, always a little rough bunch. Got a little bit of chips on their shoulders. They struggle a little bit. Uh, but I have a middle child, and uh, we got him a shirt for Christmas a couple years ago, and it says, I'm the middle child, not that anyone cares, which is kind of a fun uh, Christmas present. Uh, but he found out, he's kind of a proud middle child. He wears, you know, he wears it, uh, wears it proudly. And he found out a couple years ago that there's actually a National Middle Child Day. And it's on August 12th. So if you proud middle children missed it by a couple days, maybe you can get a chance to, uh, to do that. Uh, but do you know uh, what he found? So he found out that National Middle Child Day is on August 12th. Do you know what else is on August 12th? His sister's birthday. Is anything more middle child than that? Speaking of birthdays, my oldest son Tommy turns 16 tomorrow. Proud of you, buddy. Happy birthday to you. Proud of you. And... Uh, I love being your dad and the man that God's making you, so happy birthday to you. Eli's going to be driving, so here we go. Stuck in the middle. All right, so it's been the Bible story. We're also living in between the first two chapters in the Bible of Genesis, where God made a garden and made people, and it was good, and it was perfect. There was no brokenness. There was no death because there was no sin. Everything was as it was created to be, perfect harmony, perfect relationship with God. But then what happened after that? is we got kicked out of that first garden. But God in his sovereign grace is restoring and preparing a new garden for his people in the new heavens and the new earths. And that's what we're waiting for. That's what's waiting for us, the restoration of that garden. So we're also in between the two comings of Christ, we're also in between two gardens. Genesis chapter two and the end of Revelation, we're waiting but we're here. It's not yet. It's promised, it's guaranteed, but it's in a world to come just as the Lord and his sovereignty and design intended 
for it to be. We're not supposed to be there yet. But on God's perfect timetable and his perfect clock and his sovereignty, one day that new garden will be a reality. So based on all of this, here's what Jesus was praying, the son praying to the father, and here's what he prayed. He prayed for the unity of the church, but he also prayed this. He said in the same prayer in John 17, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. What an important prayer from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he's acknowledging the enemy actually is real, we see in scripture that Jesus did not believe the devil to be some kind of allegory, and that the devil is actually a real being that's seeking to devour his prey, which is Christians, which is the church. I know in our age it can be easy to say, you really believe in a devil? Aren't we a little more enlightened than that? Yeah, I get it as a symbol for evil, but you actually really believe and expect me to believe there was a real devil. Well, I believe that all scripture is inspired, and we're going to see scripture as it is. And one of the greatest interpretations of scripture is how Jesus saw things. And Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, believed the devil was real. So if I believe that Jesus rose from the grave, and the way I know that is because the Bible has told me so, and the same way I believe the devil is a real being, and such a real being that here in his prayer for his people, he's saying, Father, don't remove them from the world. That's not the plan. The plan has never been to remove Christians, but rather please protect them while they're in this world, from the evil one. And then he says these amazing words that really shapes the foundation of much discipleship in my mind. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So two verses that almost seem like they're in contradiction, but actually go in perfect harmony together. God, please don't take them out of the world, but protect them while they're here. Don't take them from the world, but wait a second, they're not of the world. Just like I'm not of this world. A very clear declaration from Jesus, this idea of not being of this world. That we're to be distinct from the world, but active in the world. Distinct yet active. Different yet present. It's important that not of this world can't be confused with not in this world. He calls us to be not of the world. But he does, we see throughout the scriptures, call us and model it himself for us to actually be in the world. Ashlyn Portero, one of my great friends, former longtime staff member here, was sent by our church to be a missionary in London, in the neighborhood of Queens Park, to be a part of a church planting team. Now, Ashlyn has loved London for a long time. She went there and studied abroad in college. Uh, into her adult life, she'd love to go there for her vacations. She loves the history, the museums, like the, everything that is British culture, Ashley's always really enjoyed. Uh, but she would go just for a week or so, for 10 days. She would go on vacation. She would go as a tourist. But she also fell more and more in love with the city and with the people there and saw the need for gospel-preaching churches in a place that used to be saturated with them and now has very few, sadly. So what did Ashlyn do? She actually moved there. She didn't have a, just a passport anymore. She got a visa. And now she has a home there and an address. They could send her mail. Like she has an address there. She lives in London. But she's still an American. She's still an American citizen. But she happens to live somewhere else. And that is a metaphor for us of what it looks like to be in the world, not of it. We are here. God has us living here, but ultimately we are not from here. We're citizens of another place. 
But Ashlyn's not going to, if she just moved to London and stayed in her apartment or her flat, as they call it all day, that wouldn't be very effective. She went to London to be used by God in London and actually be there. So part of the way that we show that his kingdom is not of this world is to embody that new kingdom, which in part has beliefs and values that are different from this world. And they're not generic Judeo-Christian values, but rather the value that Jesus is king. That the banner we live under now, the confession we make, is that Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is the one that all things are under his feet. That he reigns and he rules. That's what separates us. We believe there's no king but Jesus. That ultimate allegiance is to him. Now we live in that reality in a world that's not our own. Which is going to be complicated in a world that thinks everything else is king. Myself, feelings, the things of this world, that everything, achievement, identity, that all of those things are king. And here we are in the middle of the two comings of Christ, believing that only one is king and his name is Jesus. So by nature, Christians are different than the world around them. We've been made new. We've been cleansed from our sins. We've been made new creations. We've been brought from darkness to light to walk in the light. Jesus in John 18 said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from here, he tells us. So we can't cut ourselves off from the world because Jesus didn't. And he has given us a mission. So instead, as the church, we need to be present and to be visible in the place where God has left us in the middle And that is here on earth, knowing that he hasn't actually left us, that he is with us as the Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out the task that God has called us to. So our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates need to be able to look over at us and see something different. And that is the answer to that Jesus prayer in John 17, that they're not from here, but oh, there's something different about them. They're not of here. Now that's easier said than done, and I'm sure all of us at some point in our lives, maybe in this past week, has maybe turned someone off from Christianity based on our actions or our words or a quarrel we were in or some sort of majoring on something of this world that resembles the world more than the church. And that needs to be weighing heavy on our hearts, that we are God's ambassadors, that God has us in this world to shine the light of Christ. That's why Jesus himself said, let your light shine before others, before them, like in front of them. That they may see your good works, your distinct life that points to a distinct God. They'll see your works and give glory to your Father in heaven. But as being stuck here in the middle, Christians walk a thin line. It really is complicated. It really is a tightrope. Because we're surrounded again by loud declarations that everything is king except for Jesus. And that tightrope is really how it should feel. There should be a tension for us in how to make sure we manage through this time. The tensions, I believe, are good, though, because tensions mean we're not home yet. So in this series, this is an intro this morning, more of a topical talk. We're going to be diving into text the next five weeks after this, looking at different ways we can live out this tension, to be faithful Christians walking that tightrope that is in this world while not being of this world. One of the tensions, as Ed Stetzer says, is to figure out how to make sure that we separate ourselves from personal sin, not actually from sinners. Like we're going to live holy lives as God has called us to, as he has saved us to. We must live lives that are not in sin, must flee from sin. 
The Bible says to clothe ourselves in Christ, to flee sexual immorality, to not carry the spirit of darkness, to carry the fruits of the spirit. We want to live holy lives as we follow Christ and make his name known, but not actually avoid sinners. Holiness is separated, separation from sin is the actual Stetzer quote, not sinners. Jesus didn't avoid people caught up in sinful lifestyles. When he was questioned on it, he replied that it isn't the healthy who need a doctor in Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter two, it's the sick. And his people, that being us, we should know that that's who we used to be. People who were diagnosed as spiritually not just sick, but dead in our sins, who need to be brought back to life, and now being present in a world full of sickness and death should be a top priority for all believers. It's going to look different how it's carried out for you and your family and the life phase you happen to find yourself in, but the same goal should be to let our light shine before others and to be feet to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. But what's happened is that far too often throughout history, keeping from being of the world has resulted in Christians withdrawing or sheltering from unbelievers and from culture socially and even sometimes physically. It's almost our own figurative lockdown we impose upon ourselves, spraying hand sanitizer all over our bodies and wearing a figurative mask before doing that was a normal thing. Removing ourselves from the world, very different than what Jesus prayed that his people would do. Now, on the other side of the coin, far too often, many professing Christians, and we find this often in a type of liberalism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, have assimilated themselves into the lifestyles and worldviews of unbelievers and rebellious Christians around them. Some have even abandoned their own faith or rewrote the faith in a way that makes them, uh, we could say, works for their choices, their politics, and for their relationships. A Christianity that accommodates me better and the life I want to live. And usually the trend when that happens is to blame the church or organize religion when that happens, and it really is a thing we see in our culture today. So the conservative tendency, the conservative Christian tendency is oftentimes a withdrawal, it is to wholly huddle. It's to see everything as a culture war. It's to maybe oftentimes have a persecution complex about very many things, even though there are real things that are coming our way and are here already, but kind of can walk in that posture oftentimes. And it really is not the way of Christ to withdraw. And the progressive liberal tendency is oftentimes to assimilate, to adopt the views of the culture to take things out of the Bible you don't like, to let your politics inform your faith rather than your faith informs your politics, and that absolutely works on both sides of the aisle in terms of how that happens, and that being a common practice in our world today. And being stuck in the middle, there's gonna be a tension there, so one of these weeks in the series, we're gonna talk about that. Because we wanna be a church that actually talks about real stuff and the real things that are happening in our culture. Now, should we care about how we're perceived by others, especially unbelievers? Well, absolutely. But should our actions and words be driven solely by how we are perceived? Never. That it should never cause us to compromise the truth of the scriptures and our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus. Because if we had any other kind of different version to accommodate, it'd be a very dim light that we're shining that's more influenced by this world than by the scriptures. 
See, walking that tightrope of life in the middle isn't easy, and sometimes it can maybe feel like we're having our cake and eating it too, like one foot in the world, one foot in the church kind of idea. But the Lord calls us to follow him faithfully in the scriptures, and it's not going to be one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It's going to be both feet following Jesus, the church and the world both being essential components of where I spend my life. We must follow where Christ leads, and believers must be careful to remain distinct from the world around us. At the same time, while we're being distinct, we can't shrink back. Because why? We actually believe Christianity is true. We actually believe that Jesus rose from the grave. We believe that Christmas matters. That we believe that. We really believe that Jesus gives people second chances. And that God loves people. And that he forgives sinners. And that he brings them into his family. Like, we believe these things. So we actually want these things to be made known. We really do believe that God's way is the best way. It's the best design there is for all things. We want to make sure we don't keep that to ourselves. Because God, by his grace, allowed us to be brought into his family, allowed us to receive and believe. He used someone to tell us the good news of the scriptures. And I think often, for at least for me, and I'm, I'm guessing you probably dabble in this a little bit too, that one of the biggest dilemmas on the tightrope we're walking of being stuck in the middle of trying to be faithful to Christ in the world, not of it, is the, this temptation, and that's to place our full faith in temporal moments. That's usually where a lot of our sin comes from, and where we get what well, comes from our heart ultimately, but the practical outworkings of it is oftentimes that we're putting a lot of stock, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, a lot of our lives into things that are completely temporary. It doesn't mean they aren't important, it doesn't mean they don't matter. The reality is that they're temporary. And that leads me to often believe the two lies that I share often here. If you're new here at our church this morning, you're going to hear these often. I really do think it's our, it's our biggest issue, is that there's belief that there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And the other is that to go around God for all the things I'm looking for in my life rather than actually write to him. And those things are often dictated by how much stock I'm placing in things that are temporary. And one of the great things about the scriptures, what the most obvious for me is that it's the word of God and God speaking to us is incredible. He's given us his words in our Bibles. But another thing the Bible does is it shows God's care for his people concerning the things we struggle with. So a lot of the things the Bible writers are dictating that God, that's empowering them to write, the scriptures tell us that all scriptures are inspired by God, are things that God knows that we're going to struggle with along the way. And in his grace, he's keeping us from this. He's pointing us to a different direction. He's addressing the real issues also, these real churches in the Bible we're having. And as we read them 2,000 years later, we often see they're not much different than what we deal with here. So first John chapter 2, he says this. He says, do not love the world or the things in this world. I said, let's not put our faith into temporary things. Let's not our allegiances be here if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that sounds kind of harsh. Why would that be? Because if you're, love, you're finding your love in the world, it means you're not finding your love in God. It can't be both of those things. Scriptures say we can't serve two masters. I'm either going to find my love in the one the scriptures say in 1 John, love me first and loves me perfectly, that being God, or I'm going to find my love in things that actually never really love me back. Is God caring for us? Yes, he's cautioning us. Yes, he's correcting us, which he has the right to do as our God. And in that, he's loving us. 
I say, don't love the things of this world, because if you love them, my love's not going to be in you, because you're not going to know it and experience it, because you're finding it in other places. He says, and he gets specific. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, he's like, it's not from the Father. It's not from the creator, it's, it's from the creation, it's, it's from the world, it's from a, a world that doesn't believe that Jesus is king and thinks everything else is a lowercase king. Now you might say, okay, well what do those things mean? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes? Well, lust of the flesh, verse 16, is I want to feel that. I want to feel important. I want to feel loved. I want to feel that feeling, whatever it is for you. I want to feel that. I want to feel what they feel. I want to feel what I haven't felt in a long time. I want to feel what he gave me. I want to feel what she gave me before. I want to feel those things. So it causes us to place our faith in temporary moments in order for that lust of the flesh. I want to feel that to be worked out in our lives. And it really, as the scriptures would call it, is a love of the world that misses us on experiencing the love of God because we're not finding that, we're finding it in the things of this world. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, I want to have that. I want to have that. I want to have what they have. I want to have that notoriety. I want to have that prominence. I want to have that name. I want to have that status. So temporary, I'm putting my faith in you. The, the lust of my eyes wants to have these things. I'm going to go all in on whatever it is I need to achieve and appease that lust. And then pride in one's possessions, I want to show that. I want to show by my things that I've made it, that I take care of my kids, that we have it together. I want to show that we've arrived. I want to show that I'm a hard worker. I want to show. I want to show that I'm right. And what we're told is that it's not from the world, that I have nothing to prove because Everything has already been proven by God in Christ for me that I could not measure up, but Jesus could. And now I'm accepted by God, so I, I can, and feelings aren't bad things, but I, I can not just feel that I'm accepted by God, I can actually know that I'm accepted by God. Then he says in verse 17, the world with its lust, these things he has talked about in the previous verses, it's passing away. It's temporary. The one who does the will of God, and what's that? To believe the good news of the gospel? To follow Jesus? To be in the world, not of it? To not put your faith in temporary things? That, that remains forever. Like, that's what actually remains. So here is God loving his people enough to say, put your hope and trust in what remains, not in what is temporary. And being stuck in the middle, that is the battle often. Is living in that tension. Because we're surrounded by temporary 24-7. Again, a lot of those things aren't bad things. I think it's okay to enjoy the things God has given you. I think God in his grace has given you talents and given you the family he's given you and the, and the house he's given you. And the, I, mean, I think those things are great to enjoy. They're just not ultimate things. I know it's easier said than done. That's why we're on the tightrope. But God's warning us and saying, no, those things are temporary. This remains and being a hometown pastor, I'm from Tallahassee, and um, I grew up here, and I get called into a lot of things that maybe have no church affiliation whatsoever, uh, but, but because I'm from here and new people growing up and that sort of thing, 
that I get called into a lot of bad stuff, like from people that I grew up with, or I'm, like I've done more of my high school classmates, parents' funerals. I mean, I mean, just like you could possibly imagine. And again, I count it as a joy and, and a privilege uh, because that's what I signed up for. Like I wanted to be a pastor in my hometown, so I was in high school. So I'm grateful for that. Um, I, but I also get called into happy things too. I do a lot of their weddings, you know, all, all those kind of things. But uh, but whenever I get called into something, I always say yes. Um, because I do believe that this is what ministry is and what God has called us into when it comes to the, the hardships of people's lives. Uh, so I especially, I, I want to I be a good steward of what God's given me here in my hometown in terms of responsibility and influence and those type of things in certain little pockets or whatever. So I got a call over the weekend that a guy I knew growing up that I haven't seen in years, I mean years, that he's dying. Like he's about to go to hospice. And uh, he'd been in the hospital for a long time. I didn't even, here's how disconnected I was from him. I didn't even know he was in the hospital. I didn't even know he was sick. So I was like, oh, wow, well, yeah, of course I know him. Yeah, I haven't seen him in years. And the family asked if I would come down and, and talk with him at the hospital. This was yesterday. So I said, of course. Are you kidding? So yesterday afternoon, I went to TMH, and I pulled up my chair next to his bed, and there he is laying in bed, and he looks a lot different, and he's dying. I don't know how else to put it. And I just kind of took a deep breath and was like, here we go. And uh, what happened was somebody made a comment about how he's going to get a chance to, like, see his relatives again in heaven. And he was, and that's kind of a common thing people say in those moments, whether it's helpful or not. And he said, well, how do, you, how do I know that? And then I got a phone call. So I show up, and I pull up a chair next to his bed, laying in the hospital bed. I'm sitting right here, looking right at him. And I said, so, man, um, I said, it means a lot to me that you called me in. He asked to speak with me. And I said, what are you thinking about right now? I said, like, what's going on in your mind? And he said, well, I'm really scared. And I said, well, that makes sense. I said, I think it's a pretty normal reaction. I think anyone that's, you know, even if you have all the right answers, that that moment when you know you're about to die and you're aware of it, it's pretty scary, I would think. And uh, so I said, okay. I said, I said, do you mind if I ask what you're scared about? And he was like, well, about like what happens to me after I die? And I said, okay. I said, so what, what, do you, what do you mean? Like, I know what he meant, but like, what do you mean by that? I'm trying to set him up. He's coherent. Thank God he was coherent in the conversation. And he said, well, how do I know I've been good enough? I'm just sitting there, and I said, oh, boy, he set me up. And I said, well, let me tell you something, man. I can guarantee you you haven't been. And I haven't either. But Jesus was and is. And you can't get better. You can't right the wrongs you've done in your life, but you can be forgiven. And I walked him through the story of the man at the, on the cross next to Jesus and Jesus being crucified. There's a three crosses. One mocked Jesus. The other man on the cross said, Lord, will you remember me? And that's his confession of faith there, that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Right? He's communicating that by, Lord, remember me. And I want to show him that like, deathbed confessions really are real. I mean, they're, they're, they're real, and, and God honors that because it's about faith and about Christ, and you, know, and you don't have to be a theological scholar to get into heaven. Jesus said it's a mustard seed faith. As long as it's in the, as long, your small faith in a really big Jesus is sufficient. And so we want that faith to grow, obviously, if we're going to survive being stuck in the middle, but he confessed in the hospital room that Jesus was Lord. And I had a chance to lead the guy to Christ sitting there about to die. It was unbelievable. And we give glory to God for that. Well, and, and, uh, and so here's... Well, the angels rejoice in Luke 15 when one person comes to faith, so we can celebrate that too. And, but, but, here, but here's why I bring up this story. In that moment, 
he didn't want to come talk to me. And I sit down and he says, I'm going to die in a couple days. And I still have five items left on my bucket list. He didn't care about that. You kidding? He didn't care at all. He's like, somebody posted something on social media, I think it was a passive-aggressive post towards me, and I'm upset. That's not what he said. He cared about, he thought about his family. That was extremely important. And he wanted to know about his faith. That's what mattered in that moment. Does that mean nothing else in his life mattered? Of course not. All those things matter. But what actually mattered most when you know you're about to die should also be what matters most as you continue to live as you continue to live. And that's that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the gospel is true, that he died for sinners, that he rose from the grave, and one day he's going to return and make all things new. So I got to tell him that heaven's a real place where real people go, and I believe all my heart that he's going to be there. Not because of what he's done, because we, we agreed on that together, that how good is good enough? You failed, I failed. Jesus didn't fail. Let's trust in Jesus over everything else. So for us to be in the middle and move from kind of being stuck in it to actually, I don't know if we're ever meant to fully thrive in this world, but to, to be effective and fruitful, maybe to flourish, I guess you could say, live an abundant life that God has given us, I think it's going to start and finish in the confession that Jesus is Lord. And that we submit ourselves to that reality and that understanding and do it joyfully because we actually do believe that God loves us, that is eternal the things of this world, while they might be good things and some, some fun things and enjoyable things, they're not ultimate things. So why would I put my faith in temporal things? I'm asking myself this question when I can put myself in the one who is forever. I'm excited about this series. We're going to dive into some real stuff. I'd love for you to this, this, this fall, as it's kind of cranking, to go, you know what? I'm going to make church a thing. You know, I've kind of been in and out for a while. So this this fall, like we're gonna, if we're in town, we're going. So we're going to make it a priority. I'd love to see it be a reality in your life. I really think it's important. It's what God has given us in the word, his word. He's prescribed for us, the local church, as his design. So let's, uh, let's take part in it together. It's an important thing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the truth of the scriptures. I just love when I read in my Bible about how much you care for us and how much you love your children. And I'm thankful for the warnings that you give us. And I confess that oftentimes I don't take those warnings seriously, and that's just me putting more faith in temporal moments than in you. So when I repent of that, I confess that and ask, I'll be someone so convinced of who Jesus is, but I want to live my life under the truth that Jesus Christ is King. I thank you for my friend, and I ask that in these next few days of his life, however long you have for him, that he will be able to rest at night knowing, and rest in his bed knowing that he's right with you, not because of what he's done, because of what you've done in Christ. We're thankful for all that in the name of Jesus.